at the end of the day, the consumer brands that are going to win are the ones that are where customers want them to be. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, we jump into the world of startups as we sit down with John Tavis, the CEO and founder of The Books Company. John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure. Well, I really want to jump in straight to the story of uh, you starting the company. How did the idea of the business even come to be? Yeah, so, you know, this, this whole thing started with a, a terrible 90s pop rock cover band called Sexual Chocolate, formed in 1998 with my good friend Juan Pablo Montufar Arroyo um, at the University of Notre Dame. And that's, a, that's the truth. That's not a made-up story. And um, he, uh, he's a really interesting guy, born and raised in Ecuador, family um, in the floral and dairy farming businesses. And even as a teenager, he had a passion for floral, and uh, he had always planned to move back to Ecuador and run a flower farm at some point in his life. And, and that's what he did. And uh, I had had a career um, over the years at, at, in strategy consulting and, and, and strategy at Bain and at, at the Walt Disney Company. And then I had jumped into the world of startups. And he and I started talking about the, the pain that he was having as a farmer in the industry. And, uh, and I sort of very quickly identified a lot of pain points on the consumer side. And so as I learned about his business and where he was struggling, and I thought more and more about the category and kind of the lack of a, of a true, large, aspirational brand in the space, uh, we put our heads together and said, hey, let's, let's try to build a solution here that actually fixes it for the farmer and for the customer. And that's, and that's how we, we got started. And you know, when you think about the business today, are you an e-commerce company, a technology company, a consumer brand, or a mixture of all the three? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think people perceive us as an e-commerce company, and, and we certainly do have all the trappings of a typical e-commerce company, right? We drive traffic to a website, people purchase there, they might sign up for a subscription, which we hope everyone does. But that's not that's not really the company. I would say that's probably a third of the company. The the real foundation of the company is the technology and the data, because what we're really doing is we're taking a perishable supply chain and streamlining the heck out of it. So in floral, there's five or six layers typically between the farm and the consumer. And we've, we've shrunken that down to one layer, which is the Books supply chain logistics system, which is a network of farms and our data sort of taking over and handling all those different steps just through one entity. And so that technology platform and the data that it creates and then, and then leverages is really the basis of the business. So if I think about what we, what really enables the business to work, it's that. And that would, and with that lens, we would be a technology and a data company. But that is only part of it because what it enables is a just-in-time, real-time supply chain and logistics network that moves those flowers around the country and, and eventually around the world in a way that's just much more efficient than anyone else at scale. And so I think of us as a supply chain logistics company as well. And then again, you need some reason to ship them, which is where our e-commerce side comes in. So if I was going to give us percentages, I'd say we're 50% a, a data and technology company, 25% a supply chain logistics company, and 25% an e-commerce company. But long-term, Ultimately, what will be is just a really big floral brand, and all the rest is, is a means to that end. 
So diving into that uh, supply chain side of things, you know, the flower industry, you know, in the very traditional sense is really seasonal. You know, it peaks around the hol- big holidays of Valentine's Day and Mother's Day, et cetera. What a unique opportunity did you guys see when you thought about approaching the industry different to avoid those peaks and valleys? Yeah. So, you know, the way we think about it is the relationship with our customers shouldn't be once or twice a year. If that's the case, then we're not doing a great job because there's a lot of other reasons to buy flowers, right? There's birthdays, there's anniversaries, there's congratulations, there's I'm sorry, there's there's sympathies. And so we want to a brand that's there for people year round. But the reality is if you can't handle a big a bit a really big spike at a Mother's Day or a Valentine's Day, then you can't be there for your customers when they really need you as well. So it really isn't avoiding the spikes. You have to be there for your customer when they need you. And and that includes Valentine's Day and Mother's Day. But it is building a brand and a relationship with a customer where they say, hey, I want to use them year round. I want to make them a partner. And we've actually made that sort of the linchpin of what we do. And, and, And actually, the biggest holiday of the year is not Valentine's Day or Mother's Day. It's birthday. It's just roughly spread out, you know, one 365th every single day. Uh, you have a little bit of a spike in September because of all the people who had a couple too many drinks on New Year's Eve. But other than that, birthdays are pretty generally spread across the year. And so we want to be there for people for all those. And, and we've, we've actually invested pretty heavily in the past oh, six months, really, in our subscription service. And we introduce it to every single customer now, 30% off plus free delivery if you sign up. And we give them flexibility to skip it and, and to send it to, to one person one month, themselves the next month, or, or somebody else the next month so that they can use it in that way to really be a tool to help them just gift in a better and more efficient way. And that's great for the customer and that's great for us. So we, we feel like we got to play in those big peaks, but that's not really where we're trying to win. We have to have a big presence because you've got to be there for your customers. But the rest of the year, when people are, are really looking for a brand they can depend on, that's really where, where, where we want our bread and butter to be. So I want to double click on that product offering a little bit because it, you know you touched upon you've got this really unique subscription model for the consumer, but then you also have the business offering. You also have wedding services. How do you think about that mix of the different businesses? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So as, as I said earlier, our ultimate goal here and, and our vision for the company is not to be a gifting floral e-commerce company, which is pretty much what we are today. We have other businesses, they're, they're relatively small compared to the main business of gifting for, for consumers. But ultimately, you know, flowers play this massive, important part in our lives. You know, we, we're born and our parents get flowers. We achieve something or we're going to play flowers. We go to prom, we either get or give flowers. We um, get engaged flowers. We get married flowers. We have babies of our own. We get flowers and we die and there are flowers there. You know, this product is really genuinely a part of our lives, you know, the entire way. And as a brand today, we play in some of those places, but we don't play in all of them. And we, we really want to be that brand that people think about sort of across any of their needs, whether they're getting married, um, whether they have a business and they need flowers for the front, you know, waiting room or, or within the office. And some of these things we do today, some of them we don't yet, um, but ultimately we want to be that brand that uh, people think about and go to for all of those occasions. And that's ultimately the vision. We want this supply chain logistics platform that we've built, which is super powerful to serve customers in, in a much broader way. So you know, when you look at the, the space you're playing with of e-commerce and, around floral and flowers, it's not a new concept. There's been a lot of ways to do that for a, a kind of a long time, if you will. 
But technology is not something that people just readily adopt because it's there. It's something that sometimes might be forced on them or others. And, you know, we're seeing that right now in the world we're living in with COVID, where there's this dramatic spike in online delivery for grocery stores and restaurants and everything else. Have you seen a similar spike in adoption with floral shops and other traditional retail being closed where people might have gotten flowers themselves in the past? Yeah, so we're absolutely seeing a surge in interest in the category, at least as far as it goes with our business. And I think for a few reasons. You know, I think one, you know, people are, are we're very used to traveling places to visit people for lots of reasons, right? To, to, to attend the graduation, to attend the wedding, to attend the birthday party, whatever it might be. And unfortunately, at least in, in these times, those are just not options anymore. And so people are looking for a way to be there without being there. And sending a gift is often what people think about. And I don't think this is reserved just to floral, but generally speaking, going online and buying something to send as a gift is going to be a really nice way to, to be there without being there. And so I think that's part of it. I also think part of it is that we provide a really good service at a really good price. You know, we are, I like to say, we're, we're a much more premium brand with, with really premium products, but at, an, at a pretty accessible price. And so in a time when there is economic uncertainty, uh, we're, we're viewed as a really good value. And then I think the last part is that people just want to be connected. And in times of crisis where we're all struggling in, you know, personal, professional, economic, or other ways, people want to be connected and, and, and kindness always comes out, right? And, and you know, we, we always say internally kindness always, but I feel like in, in this time, while there's a lot of political fighting and, and there's a lot of disagreement about how we handle this at sort of the macro level, at the end of the day, people revert to kindness. And, and so I think all of those things are reasons why people are certainly interested in us and, and the product we have. And I guess kind of the last part is the way that we operate, right? We have this global network of farms, over 140 farms around the world that grow almost 2 billion stems a year. So it's a very big, robust network of farms and they're all over the place. And so we can operate. Uh, we haven't really missed a beat since all this started. And there's a lot of businesses that unfortunately are, are impacted. And so we, we have this reliable, scalable network that can be there for our, our customers. And so I think all those, for all those reasons, we've seen, you know, a pretty nice increase in our business at a time where a lot of businesses are struggling, which, you know, I talk about with my team is a very strange place to be. We're thrilled to be there for our customers and, and that people want to send kindness and they want to use flowers to do it. That's an amazing thing, but it's also really weird to have a business doing as well or better at a time when so many businesses are struggling. It's just, a, it's a weird cognitive dissonance, right? And, uh, and we just as a company are just trying to do our best to help people feel connected and, and to honor one another and to honor their personal connections at a time when it's harder to do that than ever. So I want to double click on that a little bit that, you know, you're entering a season right now that is the peak season. And you said earlier that you need to be there for when those peaks happen and those spikes happen in your business. But you're seeing a spike upon on top of the spike, if you will. How is your supply chain and going from only having that direct relationship with the farms versus maybe others that have four or five stops in between? How has that supply chain put you guys in that better position? Yeah, I mean, the biggest, the biggest thing is we just have fewer variables to deal with, right? So we have a relationship with the farm, and that's pretty much it. We have supply chain logistics partners, but those supply chain logistics partners are, one, global, and two, absolutely essential. And so there's not going to be an interruption on that side. 
and the farmers, you know, typically would sell to, you know, two or three different layers again between, between them and, and it gets to, to, the, to the customer. And so that's two or three other layers of possible closings, possible delays, possible issues due to, you know, uh, government shutdowns or supply chain logistics shutdowns or labor shortages or whatever it might be. And so the way our network works is frankly just more nimble, flexible, and reliable because we don't have all those layers in between. And so, that, and that's sort of by design, that's how we created the company in the beginning because our thesis was we can do this more efficiently by using technology and data to handle all this work rather than having three or four more layers in between. And so that's given us um, a level of, of stability, uh, which enables us to really give a very reliable and very uh, scalable and, and, um, and very high quality experience to our customers at a time where unfortunately some other businesses can't. And so one of the things we said right away to our customers when this all started to happen is we're still here. We're still delivering nationwide. You know, we've had a couple items sort of pop off the website for a week or two, and then we pop them back up because different nodes will have different challenges at different times. Um, but at no point have we really had any kind of material impact to, to the operational capability of our business. And so, you know, this is not something that we, we did not design this for this moment. It just so happens that the business we envisioned seven years ago performs pretty well in this moment. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. Speaking of that thesis that you had for the business, you had that on the supply chain, but you also chose to be a direct-to-consumer business and a direct-consumer brand. So with that, you rely on you know digital acquisition channels, et cetera. You know, there's been a lot of talk in the industry that because of everything playing out and you know travel not really being a category that's spending any money at the moment, et cetera, that you've seen CPM start falling pretty dramatically over the last few weeks. Has that changed your approach to acquisition, um, knowing the season you're in? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, I, I've read the same articles, and I don't want to comment directly on what our team sees, but. Broadly speaking for us, it hasn't changed much, mostly just because we plan, because of the the season, we have to plan it pretty far in advance. So just to give context, right, we we start planning for Valentine's Day in early December, and we probably lock in all of our marketing in December for for Valentine's Day. There's there's obviously some channels that are more, you know, on demand to make edits in real time, um, but we we do a lot of planning in advance. And as soon as Valentine's Day is over, our poor marketing team, and, and God bless them. They 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 work hard. Um, they they flip the switch after a couple of days of breathing, and they go, okay, now let's go get Mother's Day. And so they start planning for that in the back half of February. So while we're certainly seeing you know things change, and we're 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 optimizing on the basis of that data as it changes, it's a little bit too late to make a wholesale change to the plan. And that's in either direction. If we if we were in a business where we saw you know a massive decrease in demand. We couldn't, you know, shrink our 
are planned by 50% um, because so much of it's already baked. And then same thing in the other way. And so we certainly are, are, are making optimizations. And I think it's true, right? There's certain categories where marketing spend is down. I think I, I read something from the chairman of Expedia that their marketing spend was down like 90% and they would typically spend, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in marketing, you know, across any uh, year. And so with less competition, I mean, CPMs will go down um, just by definition as those categories that are effectively shut down for a period just can't market because it doesn't make sense. And so I think that, you know, for us or for anyone that's not, you know, for us, that's not going to be unique. That's going to be anyone that's out there, you know, trying to, to build their brands, to acquire customers in floral or other categories. And I think, you know, smart marketers are looking at the tools that they have. They're looking at those trends and trying to make bets and that where they can get more efficiency, they can grow their businesses and take advantage of that trend because it's certainly not going to last forever. You know, we, it's, we've been in an environment where cost per clicks, CPMs have only gone up over the past decade as we've been on this roaring bull market and sort of everything up and to the right. And this is, this is really the first time since we started the Boops company that that trend has, has changed. And so we're absolutely trying to optimize in real time as best we can. On the note of awareness and uh, efforts around that space, in the early days, the company ap- appeared on Shark Tank. How do you think the landscape has changed since then when it comes to both launching consumer brands, you know, at, as we're at the tail end of this 10-year bull market, as you say, but also for early awareness and funding and everything that goes into it? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's certainly a very different world. You know, when, when we, we came out with this business, Shopify didn't exist, right? And that's, it's kind of a, makes us kind of a dinosaur if you think about it. To be a, an e-commerce company that came out before Shopify really was a thing. But the amount of, of investment and development and building of tools for launching consumer brands, it's proliferated so much over that time span, you know, the last six, seven years since we launched. And so it's a very different environment. There's dramatically more brands, uh, you know, to, like since we launched Books, I want to say there was one startup before us that launched in Floral. I think there's been five others. You know, three of them no longer operate, but, but there's been a number just in our category and, and across all categories, you know, brands have prol- proliferated because the, the barriers to entry have just gotten smaller and smaller, right? It, when we launched Books, we had to hire a developer, build all the tech from scratch. Today, you can get somebody who can sort of point and click with a mouse and you can get a, a mobile app through a company like Your V1, which is a, which is a sort of a drag and drop app development company, or you know through Shopify or a, a myriad other number of, of tools, it just makes it easier. Uh, the world has also gotten smaller as everyone's gone online and remote work is now a thing. Connections are easier to make, et cetera, et cetera. Now supply chain nowadays is is much more complex than it was you know six months ago or even two months ago. But generally speaking, the barriers to getting something up and running are are lower and lower. So you see more and more entrants. But the barriers to scale remain there, and they're, 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 and they're significant. And, and you know, this is what I say to anyone who wants to start a consumer brand. Like, if you can't get to a million dollars in revenue, you have no right to be in the game whatsoever. Right? Getting to a million bucks a year should be super easy if you have any kind of chops. But going from a million to 100 million is a heck of a challenge because of all the things that come with it. You know, how do you acquire customers at scale? How do you service customers at scale? How do you handle technology and order routing and customer service and, and data management? All these things are really hard and there aren't off the shelf easy tools for that. That does not exist. You have to build, you have to raise money or, or be able to create enough revenue to build those things yourself. And so various entry, very low, lots more competition at sort of the early stage, but various of scale very high. And it's why you don't see a lot of companies 
that grow to, you know, 100, 500, 1,000 employees and consumer because the game is just really hard. But for those that can get there, the world is their oyster because there's no one else that's gotten there, right? And so there's a lot of opportunity if you can get through sort of what I call like the teenage years for any given company. Talk a little bit more about those teenage years, because one of the things you've seen with consumer brands when faced with that choice that they have to make, you know, they'll decide, well, I was born as a direct consumer brand on e-commerce, but it's tough to get to that next phase. So maybe I'll start working with a traditional retailer and I'll launch in Target a la you know, Harry's or any of those. Or I'll go launch my own retail stores and do like what Warby Parker did and stand up 100 stores across the country. How do you think about those choices of staying true to the business model of e-commerce direct-to-channel versus omni-channel and some other ways that might get you to the next next level of scale? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, look, I think at the end of the day, the consumer brands that are going to win are the ones that are where customers want them to be. If they only want them to be online, then being a direct-to-consumer only brand makes sense. But a lot of customers don't only shop online, don't only exist online, I mean, obviously outside of a COVID-19 time period. And so you have to know what the customer wants and you have to serve those needs. And so I think a lot of brands came into this game saying, the future is only online because this next generation is only going to, going to want to shop online. And that just isn't true, right? Millennials and post-millennials, they go to stores and they shop. They like the social nature of shopping. They like touching and feeling things. And so you've seen a bunch of different approaches to it. You've seen own stores, you know, you've seen you've seen Bonobos launch guide shops, right? Which are sort of smaller footprint stores. You've seen Harry go into Target. You've seen expansion of, of digital brands and, and third-party retailers. You've seen brands go into Amazon. And ultimately you have to find out where your customers are and what they want. You know, we 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 announced our our big raise um, earlier this year, the $30 million round that we closed at the end of last year. And in our announcement, we talked about how we were going to go into retail. And, and we're not going to go into retail because we just think it's what's next. It's because when you look at what the customer is looking for and, and the services they want, like consultative services for a wedding or in-person service for a corporate office or um, a hand-delivered, hand-arranged bouquet and, instead of something that's, that's shipped straight from the farm, customers have demand for these things. And we want to be able to be there for our customers every time they need flowers, right? And so that means we have to be in those places. Now, we announced that and then, you know, a, a global pandemic hit that sort of essentially killed all retail because we all have to stay home. And so those, the timing of that may shift. But that's certainly what we see as the future is, is omni-channel where, when it needs to be omni-channel, which is if you have customer needs that can be better satisfied by being in all those places, you should be. And I think you'll see, you know, as Amazon went from being digital only to now having stores to then buying Whole Foods and Walmart sort of went the other way with all their stores to now investing very heavily in, in digitally based businesses, sort of the two big, you know, eight billion pound gorillas duking it out at the top of retail and, and consumer experience. You're going to see that same trend happen at, at businesses big and small. And those that don't get to where their customers need them to be just aren't, aren't going to win. Well, and I think you made a really important distinguishing note in there is there's a difference between shopping and buying. And e-commerce in the first wave was really good at when you knew what you wanted, you could search it, you could get directly to it and do the buying as quick as possible. But shopping is a human behavior that people really enjoy. And e-commerce hasn't been great at that. And there's an opportunity for brands to bring that shopping to life in a lot of different ways, digitally and physically in different ways. 
Well, that and, and, the, and the, the human experience is one of, of wanting to check things out and try things. And when you go out to dinner, if there's not a store next door, then going out to dinner is less interesting. If you're going to the movies, gosh, I miss all these things, by the way, as I talk about them. I'm having a nostalgic moment for the times when we used to do these things. When you go to the movies, you know, and, there, and there's, it's, it's just a, a movie theater. and There's nothing else there that's very different than if you have a restaurant next door or three interesting stores that you've not seen before. I think really the challenge to retail, you know, going forward, whether you're, you're digitally native or you're, you're retail native and you're trying to figure out what's next, is how do you change that experience to be relevant for people so that they want to come to your store? And just sticking stuff on a shelf with a price is not going to win anymore. That's not enough. You actually have to add something to the customer. So is it, is it consultative? Am I helping you make a better choice? Is it your selection? You can't find this somewhere else. Is it some kind of experiential thing? Is it a combination with another brand, whether you're two brands coming together to have an experience unlike any other? There's a million ways to skin that cat. And then, you know, I think the coolest is when the two reinforce one another, right? And you're starting to see more and more of this happening, the blending of, hey, I can walk into a, a Ralph's or a Kroger and I can pick up my groceries, or I can order them ahead of time and pick them up when I arrive there, or I can have them delivered. And based on what my needs are at any given time, I might do one of those 80% of the time, 110, 110, or the right mixes for me as a customer, but I have that choice. I can customize my experience with that brand in a way that works best for me. And I think that that change in the landscape is just beginning. And I think, you know, I think the prediction like five, six years ago was retail is dead was fundamentally wrong, but the prediction that retail will be nothing like what it was. So retail is different is absolutely where we're headed. So talk about that of, you know, you announce your big fundraise and as you said, plans change when the pandemic changes your retail plans. So how do you think retail changes for you guys, you know, call it six months from now when we're on the other side of this and those plans can get back in motion? Yeah. So, I mean, for us, there's, there's so much uncertainty just around sort of how long uh, this is going to last and, and what the impact's going to be. So I, I would talk about it less about us and talk about more about just retailers in general which is, I think it's just going to be a different world as it already is, right? I, ne- I never had to used to think about what time will I go to the grocery store so I can have as few people around me as possible. I never used to have to wait outside six feet apart from one another, waiting to get into the store. And in the store, there was no one sort of uh, corralling me into a single aisle, making sure that I go to the right line at the right time, right? We had freedom, we had flexibility. And at least in the near term, as retail starts to open up, and, and I personally don't think it's really going to be opened up again until... August. Um, and I think it's going to be shut down again in November, December, January, as this thing resurges. And then maybe we get to kind of a normal next year sometime. But I think for anyone that's running shops between now and then, you're going to have to, one, staff less because you're just going to have less customers. But two, create a lot more structure for customers so they can feel safe, right? Like I, I, I go to the grocery store and I look at all this produce that's just sitting there for people to breathe on and touch. And I'm kind of like, is this really the way that produce should be displayed in a time of COVID-19? I, I think probably not. And same thing with goods in this, in this world where in between we don't have it solved, we don't have it removed, we don't know enough yet of, through testing and, and don't get going on what we're doing wrong on that as a nation. But in a world where we don't know, how do you make the customer feel safe? Like what is it that you can do to have them feel comfortable? Cleaning regimens, is everything displayed behind the glass? Is touching and feeling only by request? These are all things that retailers really have to think about. How will this change for you? How, what kind of interactions can your staff have with, with clients? How do they think about standing and distancing people? 
how do, how do people flow through the store? Should you just have sort of one-way direction? I was thinking about this in the grocery store the other day. Should we have a, a map that we all have to follow? where we literally all have to follow the little red dotted line to the store. And that way we're by definition, always six feet apart. That's probably the safest way to do it. Is it efficient enough? I don't know, but these are the types of things that I think retailers should be thinking about because you know, we don't have that presence yet. So we're not super worried about, Hey, how do we open in this environment? The, the flexibility for us is we can figure out we can, when we want to open, right? Um, for everyone that's already existing where, 25%, 50%, 90% of their revenue is through it. They have to think about this and they have to think about it now. So as soon as they get the green light, they're moving as quickly as possible to get back to some revenue. Well, I think that makes total sense. I love that uh, viewpoint. Well, it's been a pleasure learning about uh, what you built and congratulations on all your success and cannot wait to see where you take the business over the next few years. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed the conversation. If uh, if you or your listeners need flowers, go to books.com, B-O-U-Q-S.com. Greatest sustainable farm direct flowers in the world. Uh, check us out. Sign up for a subscription. It's 30% off of free delivery. Literally $36 delivered, which is a price point that no one in the industry will touch. Uh, we do that price point year-round, no matter if you're at a peak, if you're at a Mother's Day, a Valentine's Day, at a, at a time where it's really tough to get flowers. We honor that price all the time. And so it's absolutely the best deal in the industry. And uh, thanks so much for having me. Really been been fun to chat. Of course. I know where uh, my next order of Mother's Day flowers are coming from. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com. 